This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Bastille Day. Wednesday, the 14th of July, 2021. Let's storm the ramparts. <laughs> that feels like a good way of celebrating. Well, before we do that, could we talk quickly about Australia's coronavirus uh, pandemic? Because that's the other thing that this podcast is about, Norman. Uh, yesterday, we saw a bit of a drop in cases in Sydney compared to the previous days. Cause for celebration? Not yet, unfortunately, but it's great news. It's better than being 120, 130 cases and 60 people out in the community where you don't know where they've uh, where they've been um, fully infectious, infectious while they've been out there. So that's great news. So 21, I think it's 21 cases yesterday out in the community. Um, it's still a lot with a lot of contacts. So each one of them has got probably 10 contacts, lots of exposure sites. Huge burden. Remember, it's cumulative. So the day before was 48. So add those two together and add them to the day before times 10. And you start to see the huge workload for the contact tracers. So good as they are, they are close to being overwhelmed by this because it just adds up each day and they're chasing and chasing and chasing, which is why everybody in New South Wales has to go on the QR code when you go in and when you go out and really minimise how much you're going out at all. So that when the, you know, just think of those contact tracers, they've got to get onto this really quickly with as little manual handling as possible so they can really get to the heart of the issue for each person who's been out there as quickly as possible. So it's great that there were fewer cases, great that there were fewer cases out in the community, probably delays the decision or maybe even puts it off forever if it really does turn the corner of going to stage four lockdown. Why do you say 10 close contacts? I think that's the average that people talk about, that every time you've got a case, on average, there are about 10 contacts that uh, you've come in contact with over the previous time. Now, in lockdown, those number of cases go right down. So it's often just your household. That's the advantage in lockdown, whether it's lockdown light or major lockdown. But when you're free-floating in the community, it's about 10. And as, as our guest said a couple of days ago, uh, that's why it's useful to use a rolling average of smoothing those numbers over five days because they do bounce around a bit from day to day and it really takes a few days to figure out which direction a trend is going in. That's right. So it's good news, but let's just hang in there and see which way it's going to go. But politically, probably pretty hard for them to call a stage four lockdown if, if we do seem to be turning the corner, which let's hope we are. Um, the other night on 7.30, there was a sense of urgency from Brendan Crabb at the Burnett Institute of actually locking down early. But if, if we are turning the corner, that'll be good without having to go to stage four. But don't you often say, I mean, I've heard you say this so many times over the last year and a half, Norman, that you've got to go hard and you've got to go early. Should they really be waiting for things to get worse before they crack down harder? Well, the risk is that um, each day that you wait is several days extra at the other end of the lockdown. And you wouldn't want to wait much more than Thursday or so of this week to see which way it's going. So let's talk about some specific areas where there's high transmission risk. It's been an interesting case study in Sydney where they've seen an outbreak in an apartment complex in Bondi. And those people in that apartment complex are now being told to wear masks in common areas. Are there little nuanced things like this that Sydney or New South Wales could be doing to tighten the ability for the, for the virus to transmit even more? What's happening now is that in apartment blocks, you've got to wear masks in the common areas. And I think they've locked down an apartment block in uh, in Melbourne and they had an outbreak in the last 
outbreak in Victoria a few weeks ago. They had an outbreak in a South Bank. It was either an apartment block or um, townhouse complex. And I think that the spread was probably in the car park or the stairs down to the car park. So those common areas are really an issue. The, the worrying thing about an apartment block, even a fancy one, is that the ventilation is not designed for a pandemic and you can have shared air and the, you don't have ne- negative rooms. And the, 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 so this is not like a house or it's not like Howard Springs when you open the door, it's out into the fresh air, it's out into the common areas. And so apartment blocks are high risk. So this has an implication and it's been, it was discussed yesterday. This has an implication for home quarantine for people coming back from overseas is that if they're going to quarantine in an apartment, you're just going to have to be really especially careful about that. Right, so it becomes a similar situation or has a similar pitfalls to what we've seen in hotel quarantine. It does, yes. So while we're focusing on the nitty-gritty and day-to-day of this pandemic, there have been some scientists who have been looking at the origins of it and where it came from. And it's become a bit of a controversial topic because I think there was some implication that China was covering up the origins of the pandemic. There's people who like the idea that perhaps it was leaked intentionally or unintentionally from a lab in Wuhan, Norman. On Monday night on The Health Report, we had Nobel laureate Peter Doherty on talking about just this because he's one of the authors of a new preprint paper that's looking into this and just trying to figure out where the balance of evidence lies. Yes, it was a pretty heavyweight paper from uh, international experts in the field and including that, was, and the lead author was Eddie Holmes, Professor Eddie Holmes from the University of Sydney, who was the person who released the genome of the virus to the world and has got good contacts in China. And they make a pretty strong argument for this being a, a, an animal release, that there's been quite a few, and probably far more than you think, I think about nine escapes from animals of the coronavirus in the last few years, which people don't realise. It's not just SARS-CoV-1, MERS and SARS-CoV-2, it's other viruses as well. And the, the history here is that this, these come from animal sources, bat sources, to humans, and that the evidence for this coming from the lab is pretty thin. They can't exclude it altogether, but they make a pretty powerful argument that this is animal origin. And here's, a, here's an example of what Peter Doherty was saying the other night on the Health Report. We knew about two coronaviruses in human populations before the year 2002. They're common cold coronaviruses. They also cause croup. But what I, I, I must say, since COVID-19, I'm really wondering whether they don't cause other things as well. But they've been around since the 1960s. The original coronavirus, which was named by a, uh, a Scottish uh, electron microscopist called June Almeida, working in, in London, was one of those. And, uh, and then after 2002, suddenly, between 2000, 2000 and 2020, we've got five more human coronaviruses known. Uh, one was the original SARS virus, which infected people and then burned out. The two more common cold ones, possible one of them was circulating before we, we missed it. But then there's the Mears one in the Middle East that goes from camels into people, kills 30% of people, but not as infectious. And then we've got COVID 2 So something has dramatically changed since the year 2000. And basically, I think that is, uh, is massive international air travel and passenger air travel, particularly out of China, with an emerging middle class. And China has live animal markets and live bird markets. We know from influenza and we know from, from uh, the original SARS, these places are extremely dangerous. So that's Nobel laureate. 
Peter Doty speaking on the health report from Monday night. And the importance of this, Norman, is that if we're so busy looking at uh, some sort of malicious leak from a lab or unintentional leak from a lab, it takes our eyes off the more pressing risk, which is that it could happen again, another spillover event from nature. That's right. It takes your eyes off the ball. And what we've got to be doing, according to Peter Doherty and others, is have a really strong international network, which is what we were supposed to have had after SARS-CoV-1. It's what we're supposed to have with um, international influenza monitoring, is that looking out for new viruses, looking out for spread from animals, testing, and um, look, asking for help when you need it in terms of controlling, controlling these so-called zoonotic outbreaks so that you get on top of them really quickly. And if we're not doing that surveillance, not watching for them, not doing the environmental monitoring on a regular basis, we're going to miss it. And they get out of control very, very quickly, as we can see. And you can just see here with the Delta variant in New South Wales, one jump from a flight crew to a driver and you've got a city of 5 million people in lockdown. And that's just scary. And just imagine it can happen from an animal to a human, and then you've got a global pandemic. And that was the point of the paper. Don't take your eyes off the ball. Yes, it can leak from a, from a lab. There are very few examples of that through the years, and no sign of that genetically in this particular, in this particular pandemic. So it's not to ignore lab safety, but keep your eyes on the ball. Animal spread. You sound very erudite, Norman, but I know that you were on Were You Paying Attention last week and you did say lab on that show. Yeah, but what, yeah, I know I was, yeah, I wasn't <laughs> sure what he said to me. It was Ed, I think it was. And he, he, I wasn't sure what he said to me. And, and on the principle of, the, in my defence, in the principle of theatre sports, you don't block. And so you're not sure what somebody <laughs> says, you go with it. And so I blurted out lab, not sure what I was actually answering. But I, do, I actually have always believed that it's much more likely to be animal spread, although the evidence has swung back a little bit towards the lab recently, but that, that balance has been reasserted by this paper. It's a Freudian slip, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm not sure whether Freud had much to do with it rather than my bad hearing. <laughs> so back to how we fight this virus then, Norman, and one of the vaccines that's been really promising in the US because it's a single dose is Johnson & Johnson, but it's had a bit of bad press the last day or two. Yeah, in the, in the American press, because it's related to a rare syndrome called Guillain-Barré, uh, Guillain-Barré is a bit like a temporary form of multiple sclerosis. Um, I'm grossly simplifying it, but you can get uh, you get temporary damage to the nerves, and in fact, it can affect your breathing as well. So it can be pretty serious, but the recovery rate is often quite good. But people can need even intensive care with it, and they've noticed uh, an increase above the background rate. So. Guillain-Barre occurs in the community, not necessarily randomly, possibly post-viral. Some other immunizations may cause, may cause Guillain-Barre or, or be related to it. It's been reported with the AstraZeneca vaccine as well. And the AstraZeneca vaccine has got very similar technology to this. So it's very rare. It's a bit above the background and it's a warning on, you know, it's essentially a box warning now on Johnson & Johnson, but they haven't done it yet for AstraZeneca. Just how much of a worry is it then? It's not that much of a worry. This is a side effect that has been noticed in previous vaccines to some extent. It's not a knockout blow, but it, and it's yet another example of when, you, when you've given three billion doses of vaccines and watching them very closely, you're going to pick up side effects very quickly that are extremely rare that you might not have noticed for many years. Well, keep your questions coming by sending them to abc.net.au slash coronacast, but that's all we've got time for today. And we'll see you tomorrow. See you then.